in that process, he began to talk and he started to cry. So now this grown man's crying in front of this whole room. And he said, I just don't want to lose my son. And in that moment, John, it was like, wow, we'd lost Sam a year earlier. I'm like, it's just two dads. Yeah. It's not a black man and a police officer. It's not whether my numbers are accurate and correct or his fear is true. Or It's just, we're dads. Your Marketing Moment is about those significant events or moments in time that transform a career or business and how you too can create a marketing moment of your own. John Nee, president of Act One Partners, a marketing strategy and experiential firm, interviews business leaders about their marketing moments and covers significant marketing moments in history and their impact on how we do business today. Short and usually focused on a single event, your marketing moment takes just a moment of your day, but can ultimately prove momentous for your own career or business. Welcome to your marketing moment. I'm John Nee, your host of the podcast. Today's episode of your marketing moment is the format in which we hear from a business leader about how their marketing moment positively changed the trajectory of their business or career. I'm delighted to have Bob Day join us today to share his story. Bob is the founder of Reluctant Change, a company that offers workshops, keynote speeches, and consulting services on how to use humility, curiosity, and empathy to manage change and lead effectively. During Bob's nearly 30 years of law enforcement experience with Portland Police in Portland, Oregon, he was recognized for his innovative methods to reduce crime and his commitment to leading difficult conversations about race, civil disorder, and their impact on the criminal justice system. Since retiring a few years ago, Bob has been a trusted advisor to corporate and public sector leaders and a sought after speaker on such topics as leadership, resilience, and hope. He is a keynote speaker, a consultant, a retired deputy chief of police, and our guest today. Bob, welcome to your marketing moment. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. So let's get started by telling us a bit about your career today. Thank you. Well, for context, as you mentioned, I'm a retired police officer, and we all know there are two things that police officers really don't like. We hate change, and we really don't like how things are. <laughs> so <laughs> seems a little bit ironic given the profession right. that I was in for so many years where change is constant, and we know that change being constant is a relatively common occurrence. It shouldn't be a surprise to any of us. But it's through that process of both going through retirement, figuring out what I wanted to do next, looking back on my career, and then some personal experiences I know we'll touch on that really resonated with me about how does that show up in my own life and how can I offer that as a learning for others. So currently, as you mentioned, and with Reluctant Change, there's kind of three formats where I've been utilizing this experience. One is as a keynote speaker you know, for conferences and things like that nature, maybe come in, talk to a board, et cetera. I've also developed a half day workshop where I work more closely, interactive exercises, things like that, really expanding on this idea around curiosity and empathy, humility, some of these basic core behaviors that I don't think we pay enough attention to that center really around our own self-awareness. And then I've also done some one-on-one -on -one work with leaders in corporate and private sector, like you said, some police chiefs, some CEOs, to just kind of help flesh out what does it mean to be curious and how do we manage the change that's so constant? So from some of the conversations that we've had, it sounds like your work 
currently centers around an invitation that you make to others for them to join you in a journey of discovery and learning to see each other in our own humanity. So what has that journey looked like for you personally? And how have people responded to that invitation? Well, it's been nothing short of life changing. That sounds a little bit hyperbolic, but really if you knew me 30, 35 years ago when I started my police career and who I am today, the changes and understanding that I've gained through this process have impacted me as a father, as a husband, as a leader, as a friend, in so many you know different ways. And growing up, like you said, in a 30 plus year career policing, which is very cause and effect oriented, very black and white, um, and a culture that I thrived in, and I'm still very proud to have been a part of and represent policing and work very close with policing, but had a very binary way of seeing things, sort of a very, this is right, this is wrong, this happens so that I do this, this happens so I do this. And some circumstances along the way, and certainly not the least of which, which I know you're familiar with, is when our son was diagnosed with cancer in 2010, he was nine years old, his name is Sam. And uh, he had a six year battle that included an amputation of his lower left leg, partially of his right foot, and of course, tons of chemo, et cetera. Ultimately lost that battle in 2016 at age 15. And, you know, we could all talk about challenges and traumatic incidents in our lives. It doesn't have to be loss of a child or childhood cancer. But for me, this was sort of a ground shaking of everything that I sort of believed and understood about how life's supposed to work. You know, person of faith, a good person, you do the right things, you raise your kids, you know, this isn't supposed to happen. And that was combined at a time, fortunately for me, where also I was in senior leadership positions in the police bureau. And a lot of things were happening in the area of racial justice that I had largely not paid much attention to. When I started my career, you know, Rodney King was in 1992, O.J. Simpson. And obviously there's a history of, of African-Americans and police and conflict that I'm certainly aware of, but I kind of saw it as separate. It was sort of like, well, it was before my time or didn't have to deal with me. But you have, you know, Trayvon Martin killed in 2012, which is the start of the Black Lives Matter movement. You have Michael Brown killed in 2014, which is the hands up movement, you know, all these things sort of pressing in a more public way. And then with social media, more cases, more interest. So that um, combined really actually the challenge of navigating Sam and the loss of Sam also sort of cracked me open to what's kind of going on in myself. What am I learning? What do I know? What do I not know? How do I be more curious? And if there is, you know, any, I hate to use the term positive to come out of that experience with our son, but really was that force change upon me that required me to take a different approach just to manage not only the personal loss, because I had to reconcile with my faith, with my wife, with our daughter, with all of that. But I also had to then continue to operate at a high level in police bureau and leading men and women. We had, you know, a lot of protests, a lot of demonstrations. And then also a lot of community groups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that I think that's what sort of, like I said, sort of opened the door for me to be willing to say, okay, let's consider some other things. Right. So it sounds like this intersection of your personal experience, losing your son, and then also the professional day-to-day experience that you had being on the streets as a cop in Portland uh, in the midst of this nationwide shift and uh, discussion, conversation about race relations probably struck you 
differently than it would most people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was at an event up at Tacoma, Washington. I've done some work over the last several years with a group called the uh, the Red Door Project. And I was at an event where they had put on a, uh, they're an artistic company here in Portland. Kevin Jones, Leslie Moniz are the co-founders. They put on an event in Tacoma that involved a series of monologues depicting the experience of African-Americans and police and racial profiling. It's not, you know, particularly police friendly, as you can imagine. At the end of the show, uh, there's about 300 people in the theater and a black man stood up there. Facilit- they were facilitating a conversation with the room and I was just in civilian clothes. Nobody knew I was a cop. And he said, I'm terrified that I'm going to lose my son to the hands of the police. And his teenage boy was sitting next to him, just super embarrassed, you know. Well, I'm in the front row and, you know, 30 year cop still with the Portland Police Bureau at the time. You know, the numbers don't support that from a practical standpoint, you know, the roughly 50 to 60 million people a year get arrested in this country. These are, you know, very broad, but pretty consistent over the last several years. About 10 million, 50 to 60 million get contacted, about 10 million get arrested. And the police kill on average about a thousand. If you look at the Washington Post, which has the most accurate database, because there is no national reporting. And out of that thousand, about 225 are black. And so I sort of sat there thinking, you know, this is just a ridiculous statement. This is more hyperbole, et cetera. And very dismissive and not proud of that. But that's where I was because those are the numbers that support that. And the homicide rate in the African-American community in this country is, you know, almost 50 percent. So I'm thinking, you know, his chance of his son being killed by another black man is higher than being killed by the police. Really hard things to be thinking about. Right. In that process, he began to talk and he started to cry. So now this grown man's crying in front of this whole room. And he said, I just don't want to lose my son. And in that moment, John, it was like, wow, we'd lost Sam a year earlier. Mm -hmm. I'm like, it's just two dads. It's not a black man and a police officer. It's not whether my numbers are accurate and correct or his fear is true. It's just, we're dads. Right. And, you know, that ability to experience that empathy and more than just feelings, but actually like, okay, how does this translate? And so I didn't go up and talk to him afterwards, but I drove home from Tacoma, got home, sat down with the members of train division where I was the commander at the time and said, okay, we got to think about this differently. Mm -hmm. It's not about being right or wrong or justified. It's there's something else going on here that requires us to step into this space, particularly as leaders. And I believe that not only as police leaders, but just as leaders in general, if you have a company, a business, whether it's with your employees, your customers, whoever it might be. Yeah, that's a great story. And, and maybe that parlays into my next question. You know, we, we often ask our guests, obviously, about their marketing moment. So looking back on your career, situations like that, this, this arc that you have taken personally in, in the discovery and the, maybe your perspective on, on some of these items, what would you say is your marketing moment you know, that, that moment where you really felt like you were onto something or, or had an opportunity to contribute in a way that maybe you hadn't thought about before. Mm-hmm. So that conversation, that example I used from Tacoma was probably about 2017, 2018. And I continue to wrestle with that. I continue to try and understand you know, what's my role in that, both as a person, just as a community member, but also as a police leader. And... After I left the police bureau in 2019, and then I worked in Mary Wheeler's office in 2020, which was a whole nother probably podcast because that year was 
incredible as anybody who paid attention to the circumstance city of Portland. Sure. Sometimes I'm even hesitant to admit I was there because it wasn't very effective if you look at some of the outcomes, but, you know, did the best we could. And, and at the end of that time period, um, going into 2021, every year there are numerous celebrations and recognitions of Martin Luther King's birthday, which is always, I think, the second Monday in January. Right. And in Portland, the uh, most significant event is typically the one that's held at Vancouver Avenue First Baptist Church, which is a historically black church in Northeast Portland. It's the only church that Dr. King spoke at in his one visit to the city in the, in, during his campaigns. And uh, Pat, Pastor Matt Hennessy asked me if I would be the keynote speaker for that. And I was, you know, pretty surprised that uh, he'd seen my work in the community and my availability and my learning. So I crafted this keynote message, which was nothing short of intimidating uh, to stand, you know, at the pulpit that Dr. King stood at here, a white police officer on the heels of 2020 mm-hmm. and all that had mm-hmm. transpired. Right. And really required me to, you know, spend time just reflecting what message that I want to convey. And, you know, was it a message for me or was it a message for them? You know, and maybe a little bit of both and just trying to wrestle with that. And because we were still in COVID, it was done virtually, which was probably a blessing. So when I looked out into this church, there's, you know, four people there, but it was streamed online. And the response that came of that is really what propelled me into a belief, like maybe there's something here. And what surprised me the most was the response that I have and the opportunities I've had with people of color in this conversation. And once again, going back to a, developing a, a confidence that there's a message here for people that people need to hear versus just me telling my story. And I think that experience really you know, propelled me to say, okay, there's more here. I'm touching on something that's resonating with folks providing a little bit of a path or a guide in what I think would be nothing short of the last few years of just what seems to be an intractable divide around this conversation, not just race and policing, but really just about anything we want to throw out there becoming so polarized. So that, that moment really is what changed my thinking. Right. So you've got this experience, personal experience, like we talked about, you've got the professional experience, you've begun to invite people on this journey through the mm-hmm. work that you do now to be more empathetic and, and to step into that space where a lot of conversations become difficult. How's that going? What kind of response have you, have you gotten from, from those you've invited or those that you've spoken to? It's, it's been exciting, really. I think as leaders, our work is done in the gray. I used to say when I was at the police bureau, um, and it's easy to make decisions when it's just clear. And when it's complicated, when we're in, especially dissidents, you know, that conflicting points of view and maybe a deeply held belief that you have is confronted by another deeply held belief, somebody else. And this new information is sort of challenging that. How do you, how do you hold two truths at the same time? And this is where the change in me has occurred. You know, 25 years ago, I'd say that's impossible to hold two truths at the same time. And a good example in policing is, you know, police will say, right, we don't racially profile. We don't stop people based upon the color of their skin. You know, I stopped them because they were speeding or I didn't even know what color their skin was. You know, well, I've had enough conversations with enough, you know, African-Americans in this country that there's either a whole lot of really crazy black men out there who are just making stuff up or 
there's something going on here, right? So two things can be true at the same time, this experience of racial profiling and this deeply held belief that we're not racial profiling. But if we stand on these sides of this issue and just point fingers at one another and not really lean in and be curious, okay, what are the police really saying? What do they mean when they talk about their process around traffic stop? What is this experience as a black person in the United States with police and you know, historically, et cetera, et cetera. And we become curious about one another. Then we can start to ask questions and we can start to learn. And even if we don't reach what would be like agreement, okay, you're right or I'm right. I think agreement shows up in understanding. Hmm. Just coming to an understanding, you know, is a form of agreement. And where we're at right now and what concerns me is that we're not even able to do that. You're either with me or against me. How many times we, you know, pick a side, literally physically we're doing that as a country and as a community and we've lost that art of curiosity we've lost that willingness and not curiosity like what'd you do that for (laughs) but more like tell me more about that in his book a more beautiful question warren Berger says that the average child between the ages of two and five will ask forty thousand questions now any of us that have raised kids know that that's you know (laughs) incredibly tiring and that's why we say you know because i said so or who cares why the sky is blue or whatever. Right. And as we get older, we naturally learn, you know, I know this is a microphone. I know that's a computer. I don't have to ask you, you know, these questions, but we also become less inquisitive, less curious because we become more knowledgeable. So then we become more certain and we need that to survive. This is not a criticism or a bad thing. We need to be able to move through life and function. When I go sit in my car and turn it on or work my iPhone, I don't need to ask a thousand questions, but that has translated, I believe, to a lost art of really learning about each other and seeing each other, as I said in, in the bio, my, our humanity for one another and developing that empathy and not just feelings, but like actionable things that we can do to shift. And, and what I'm finding when I present it that way, you know, leaders are like, wow, there's a path here. There's an opportunity. I'll just quick example. You know, I had a during 2020, I had a CEO call me and he was so frustrated because his employees, about 200 employees, his employees wanted paid time off to go participate in the protests. This is a guy, you know, like me, he's, you know, 60 year old white guys built this company from scratch, done a great job, provided a great living, provides a great product. He's a good man, but he's just losing his mind. He's like, How, what am I supposed to do with that? You know, I got these 30 year olds that want paid off, paid time off to go protest. We don't protest. We make widgets. You know, we don't. What do we do with that? <laughs> yeah, right. So just, you know, working through that, talking about it. Well, let's think about that for a minute. What does that mean? What are they really asking? What do you really demonstrate? What do you demonstrate to them now? You know, be curious instead of just. No, I don't, you know, whether or not he does or does not author the time off isn't the issue. The issue is for me, how do you manage that to uh, maybe lessen the dissidence and find some understanding so that you can support one another in a different way? Right. Well, I know it's only been a few years, but it sounds like you're making some really good progress and uh, making positive impact in a lot of people's lives. But looking back, during this transition, would you have done anything differently? Uh, certainly a lot of things I would have done differently, but probably the most significant is trusting myself and trusting sort of the zeitgeist or the information around me. I mean, you and I met years ago when I first, you know, sort of stepped off this cliff and have remembered that conversation and appreciated your willingness to demonstrate 
vulnerability, integrity, you know, courage to step forward into your space and say, hey, here's what I'm trying to do. And it's taken me a couple of years to be willing to really embrace that. But I have been fortunate, you know, in part of my own learning of curiosity and leaning in and being humble enough to say, hey, I don't have this all figured out. But I feel like I'm I might have missed some opportunities along the way because of that hesitancy to trust that there was something here to offer a message that could benefit others and a learning that could be delivered practically and hopefully in a way that, you know, resonates. I, I want to be about purposeful change. It's not just to, you know, go through the motions. I want to actually be able to involved in situations, organizations, programs, whatever it might be that actually going to make that change happen. Right. Well, you've been a, to a number of different conferences, mm-hmm. uh, met with thousands of people in the last few years, uh, spreading this message and helping organizations. What are you currently excited about or what trends do you see developing in the workplace or in society today? Well, my excitement is combined with, or the other side of the coin is my true, you know, fear or trepidation in that uh, the issues of change management are not going away. They're only becoming more heightened. Some of that's just natural technology, you know, AI, whatever. And hopelessness is a defense to change. Hopelessness is a defense to change because we oftentimes don't see a path forward and we see this happening in it's like, I don't even want to embrace, I don't want to lean into that. I don't, you know, I don't even understand how that'll work. And so that makes sense for us in a lot of ways, right? I, I touch a hot stove. I know that I'm going to get burned. You're not going to convince me to touch a hot stove again. You know, I know that to be true. And there are times when we need to stay true to that, like not touch a hot stove regularly. But there are many, many circumstances in our lives, I believe now, particularly as leaders, where we overlay that fear of loss or hurt when it may or may not be true. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't protect ourselves and we shouldn't do what's right for the company or for us or whatever. But with all of this coming at us, both in a literal sense, like we said, whether it be technology, the market, environment, et cetera, the world, you know, land war in Eastern Europe for, you know, first time since the 1940s, at least to the level and extent that it is now, all of these things that sort of bring pressure on a social justice, racial justice movement are causing, I think, a level of hopelessness Mm. where people are saying, you know, why bother? It doesn't matter. I'm just going to do what's best for me because I don't want to take that risk. And there is risk, but that's where the trepidation comes from. But the excitement comes from, I think there's never been a greater time to be a leader, to be on the point. People are looking for guides. They're looking for support. I was just reading this last year, uh, a little bit about Mount Everest, just out of curiosity. I'm not a mountain climber at all. I have (laughs) no interest in being a mountain climber. But, you know, Sir Edmund Hillary, the first person to stand on top of the world, you know, May of 1953, everybody knows that name. Standing right next to him was Tenzing Norgay, the Sherpa. Mm. Not a lot of people know who Tenzing Norgay was, but he was literally right next to him. And he would never have been on the top of that mountain. Now we need the, the Hillary's of the world to say, I wonder if we can stand on top of Mount Everest someday. Yeah. But we need the Norgays of the world. And so to not, you know, today I feel like we are faced with 
what seems to be insurmountable challenges. But I've learned from my own personal experience by applying humility and curiosity, empathy, hope, whether it's going through our journey with Sam and since then, you know, my marriage, raising our daughter, et cetera, but also stepping into what's really kind of the third rail of policing, this conversation around police and African-American relationships and historical marginalized communities have done a lot of stuff in behavioral health and with addiction and mental health and all of those areas where criminal justice touches rightly or wrongly. Um, I just has brought me an incredible amount of joy. The depth of relationships that's come out of this and friendships experiences. I could take the rest of your podcast, but <laughs> Yeah. You know, standing, standing, yeah, standing in front of groups of people that I just never would have had that chance to do so because of that. Yeah. Well, we're all grateful for the way that you have stepped into a very uncertain and sometimes volatile space. I think you bring a very unique perspective with your professional and personal experience. And it sounds like you're making a difference. So thank you for your contributions to society. And it's encouraging to hear that people are open to those invitations that you're offering to, to join you and to be a little bit more empathetic and curious. And it sounds like there is hope for, for us in the future. Yeah, thank you. So thanks for joining us, Bob, and spending time with us today and sharing your thoughts and insights. And thanks for listening to Your Marketing Moment, a program that spotlights those events that significantly changed the trajectory of one's career, their company, or had a profound impact on American business. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and you've been inspired and informed to create a marketing moment of your own. Thanks for listening to this episode of Your Marketing Moment. This is a production of Act One Partners, a marketing strategy and experiential firm that helps companies elevate and transform their business by knowing their market, telling their story, and living their brand. Be sure to visit our website, actonepartners.com forward slash your marketing moment and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts.